Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. So everybody, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. We have the amazing Dr. Sarah Dodd with us. She is currently Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Mayo Clinic and is the recipient of both Distinguished Clinician Awards and Distinguished Educator Awards from the Department of Anesthesia several times over the past years. She's a founding member of the Women in Anesthesiology Group here at Mayo Clinic and has a passion for optimizing the care of lactating patients throughout healthcare and is a member of the American Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, among her anesthesia memberships, of course, and is a reviewer for Breastfeeding Medicine Journal and the Journal of Human Lactation. Admittedly, I didn't know those existed. They're good. That's amazing that you were doing (laughs) that. She has also published several peer-reviewed articles, including many that relate to safe and optimal breastfeeding and lactation practices for both patients and healthcare staff. She is an associate of the Academy of Educational Excellence. And after we heard Dr. Dodd give her grand rounds to our department, it was very clear that we wanted to connect her with all of you as the listeners to our show. And so welcome, welcome, Dr. Sarah Thank you. Sarah Thank you so much for having me. Truly our pleasure. This is an area that is a, a gap for me personally. I can't wait to learn more so I can take better care of my patients. You presented your case, I'm sorry, your grand rounds with a case to begin with. We often kick off our shows with a case. Would that be okay if we did that? Sure, of course. The first one that came to mind or that got me interested in this topic in particular was I went to the preoperative area to interview a patient. She was going to have a tonsillectomy and she had been told multiple different things about what to do about breastfeeding. She had been told that she needed to stop first. She'd been told that she didn't need to stop. She'd been told by family members and friends that they had been told various things. And what came to a head in the preoperative areas, she was just frustrated and anxious and tearful and wanted to know what I thought. So luckily I had, thank you academic medicine, I had just heard about this topic um, in a morning conference that one of the residents had presented. And so it was very fresh in my mind and I talked it through with her and that was very rewarding. Then I go back to the workroom and I say, can you believe all these different things that this patient was told? Everybody said, oh yeah, that's crazy because it's five different things, right? In the workroom. So I thought, (laughs) okay, well, here here are the sources of all this misinformation. And nobody in the workroom looked stressed um, or upset by these conflicting uh, recommendations, but it really was a big weight for the patient, patient's family, whoever's going to care for the infant during that time that the patient's having surgery and recovering. So I thought, well, I'll just tackle this a little at a time. And then it's just kind of grown into something that I'm passionate about and try to move forward at Mayo a little bit every day. That's fascinating that you kind of fell into this yeah. by accident. Yeah. Um, but it's obviously a passion. I see you working yeah. on it in the boardrooms and through literature and giving talks, yeah. all trying to further this one purpose. So I've been working on it for five or six years now, especially the perioperative period. And it's it's been really rewarding in that just in the past couple of months, we've had a couple of patients have uh, more than 10-hour duration operations, and we've been able to support them from pre-op information to intra-op milk expression so that they don't get mastitis or have a supply drop to post-operative um, ICU and floor care with, you know, infant being able to visit, designing um, 
breastfeeding compatible medication plans for, you know, start to finish and just letting mom then go home and resume that part, you know, of her relationship with her infant or feeding plan. People decide to breastfeed for a lot of different reasons, and by the time they come and see us in the operating room, they've already been through a lot in that journey. They've already started, um, probably gotten through some of the most difficult times in feeding. They may be back to work and pumping and figuring all this stuff out. And for us to not be supportive of that in that moment when we all worked so hard to make sure breastfeeding is the, the standard in the, uh, uh, for that patient, um, it just feels right to su- continue to support them. I think that's incredible. And when we start to think about these time courses, 10 hours would in many uh, cases be something uh, a boarding patient in the ED could experience. Yeah. And Somebody comes in with uh, a surgical complaint, acute cholecystitis or something like that. When we start our workup, we're ordering ultrasounds, sometimes CT scans, and this entire workup is going to take several hours. And so for us, that's the minimum that in some cases that a patient's going to experience. We need a a medication plan to keep them safe and comfortable throughout that time. And and so we're very grateful to have you here to walk us through some of those safer medication plans. I remember you began your talk by giving a basic overview of the physiology Mm -hmm. behind lactation. Can you help us by just refreshing any of our listeners who might not be remembering about that? Of course. During pregnancy, the body is preparing for lactation. And so there are some breast changes, kind of size or density, maybe have a small amount of colostrum production toward the very end of the third trimester. But really, milk production begins after the placenta is delivered because the progesterone is inhibitory until the placenta has been delivered. So that's why the milk delay term is coming in. But that's why the milk production really increases a couple of days after delivery. So for that first couple of days, milk production happens for everyone. It's it, And it sometimes can be even a little bit of overproduction to in the point of engorgement. But then downstream from that about two weeks and beyond it becomes supply and demand based so the milk removal and the schedule that it's removed on really helps determine supply there are some other things that can can affect supply like hydration and stress and breast size uh, things like that but for the most part once the patient gets to steady state with their infant it's about supply and demand so one of the important things about supporting these patients for short or long periods of time in the ED or the operating room is the schedule. So I like to sit down and spend just a couple of minutes saying, what's your normal schedule look like? What's the longest interval you would go? Some people's babies sleep through the night and and they don't, you know, get up to pump. Some of them, even though the baby sleeps through the night, they get up to pump once because those nighttime feedings and emptyings are probably even a little more important for supply than the daytime. Um, <coughs> so I think one of the things I like to know is what's your what kind of schedule are you on? That'll help us determine how many times we need to we need to arrange for you to express milk in the perioperative period and in the ED too. If somebody's thinking, why is this something of great importance that I should be factoring into my emergency care? There's so many other things we have to be weighing already. Yeah. How would you summarize what is the importance of this to the mom, the family, and the baby. Definitely. Well, I think there's a couple of important important things to think about from the 
individual health standpoint, your patient can experience complications when you don't um, keep this in mind. So patients can have mastitis that can progress to a breast abscess. I would say that some of the patients that I've talked to are more susceptible to that than others, and they may even know that. They may even say, this is something that I struggle with if I get off my schedule. Some folks, you know, may not have had that in their history, but still develop it in this kind of situation. The other thing for individual health to think about is it, it, it's a stressor of sorts. It can, it can contribute to anxiety and things for the, for the plan not to be in place or for that part of their health to sort of be separate from what's going on in, emergently. I think that when I'll talk to patients about this in the preoperative area, they know they're scheduled for surgery, so that problem is sort of, you know, there's a plan for that, but this is the next thing, the next most important thing that they need to sort out. Well, what do I do about that? And yeah. what, a, um, so I think from the individual health, it has, uh, individual standpoint, it has those benefits for their health. From the public health standpoint, we spend a tremendous amount of resources in the U.S. to get people started uh, with breastfeeding. You know, we have these breastfeeding centers that you get. The hospital is a champion for that. We do all sorts of things, and we get people started. But to make it to the six months exclusive and then up to two years for both the um, Academy of Pediatrics and the WHO now recommend going all the way to two years, at least some breastfeeding, um, not very many people are making it to that goal. It's not just because of healthcare, you know, not being supportive outside of the obstetric context, but I think that is a factor that it's um, sort of, well, off you go, you know, <laughs> yeah. we got you through the postpartum period and now go on and make it to two years, you know, we, but healthcare needs to, I think, be supportive all the way through. And that from the population health standpoint is incredibly um, beneficial. Um, it has immune uh, implications for, and nutritional, obviously, implications for the infant. It also has some um, health implications for mom with lower risk of type 2 diabetes, breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so making our goal of breastfeeding is, I think, good for public health too. When we start to think about medication plans and the physiology of breast milk production, how do these medications get into breast milk and are they stored there? Great question. So this is one of the myths I love to bust is that the milk uh, is produced in a column type form with the, in contact with the milk producing cells. And so the medications, most of them move by passive diffusion into the milk and it's subject to a concentration gradient and moves back out of the milk once the plasma concentration goes down. So the nice thing about this is it's something we're used to thinking about. We're already used to thinking about, you know, molecular size, whether or not something's hydrophilic or hydrophobic. We're used to thinking about half-lives and things. So choosing medications for lactating patients is really subject to a lot of the same things. We're looking for medications that are sort of trapped on the plasma side as opposed to passively diffusing into the milk, so things that are big, protein-bound, short-acting. The other really interesting thing that I think sometimes gets lost because we think about lactating patients in the same bucket as the pregnant patients, and they're not the same because the infant is going to eat 
the milk. So you're also going to factor in the oral bioavailability of the medications, mm. which a lot of our IV pain medic, our IV um, all class medications don't have good oral bioavailability, which is one of the reasons we're giving them through IV. And so uh, that's another kind of protective factor in this equation. There aren't a lot of you know studies that are from the beginning, we're including lactating patients, we're gonna study them, their blood levels, the infant blood levels, the milk levels, all that. There really aren't a lot of those. When you're gonna see those, they're small studies, single or less than 10 cases take strung together or somebody who, they, they had a patient in a certain situation and they said, let's study that. So I've done that before um, as well. But we're hoping, and I hope to see in my lifetime, that pregnant patients and lactating patients are separated a little bit and that they're given the opportunity when safe to participate in these sorts of studies because not having data to me doesn't seem like a good reason to not get some more data so that when we can have no data in perpetuity. <laughs> it, just, right. it just doesn't seem like the way that medicine does anything else. Um, so you're saying uh, overall we're consciously incompetent. We just don't want to know. We we know we don't know, and we choose not to go further. Well, and we're nervous, and not <laughs> yeah. the baby. You know, the inf- I want them all to be safe too. This is this doesn't. It's just a different kind of. It's a different way of looking at it. So breastfeeding and you know good bond with mom and the immune protection that's offered, um, and you know, that all is a safety, health, wellness issue too. Um, so what we're, tra- we're talking about, it, we're talking about accurately portraying the benefit so that we can accurately assess the risk and then put that, you know, together. And I always try to do that with the patient. You know, it, it should always be shared decision making. I've had patients before where I say, oh, so you have this infant and you're breastfeeding. What do you, what do you, what's your goal for your breastfeeding? And I've had some that say, you know, we're at 17 months, I'm out of town and we're sort of winding down and I think I'm just gonna be, you know, I think this is gonna be it and that's fine, that's great. I wanna support that and just say, let us know if at some point you're uncomfortable because we don't want you to get mastitis but we're not as interested in whether you wanna save that milk or anything. And then I've had the patient that says, look, I have a five month old that doesn't, has never had a bottle before. This is a 30 minute, procedure. I, I was hoping that I wouldn't have to interrupt at all, you know, if we can plan that that way. So I think talking to the patient is, is really critical. I hope that the resources that we've built here at Mayo, hearing a talk like this, and some of the other things out there would make everybody feel comfortable having that conversation with the patient that really what, what are your goals and what do you normally do? Speaking of conversations, I think that uh, maybe not having a conversation can be a challenging part of this because a lot of times I stumble into figuring out that a patient is lactating. I can't tell you the number of times that it's only after I've assessed the patient and begin to order medications that somebody comes out of the room and says, uh, the patient has a question, yeah. uh, you've ordered a medication, and it turns out that, that they're lactating. How can we better handle these situations and identify these patients? What's the best language to use? That's a great question. So I typically ask it, well, 
first of all, we're trying to do a better job here of use, leveraging our electronic health record to ask that on sort of our intake uh, questions. We'd ask it on the intake when they come to the operating room, but we'd even like to ask it sooner in the clinic. We'd like it to be that when they come to the ER or the OR that it's already known because when they went to family med or wherever else, they put that into their review of systems. So we are working and wherever our listeners are, if you can somehow leverage your intake system to identify the patient sooner, that is easier because it is a little bit difficult to tell just by looking at a patient you know, whether that, whether they're lactating or not. And if you have patients that are, you know, breastfeeding older infants or toddlers or even, you know, small children, they may not report that. And just knowing that they have kids doesn't necessarily lead you to ask it if you assume that the kids are older than you would think that would be breastfeeding. So I usually just ask with my usual, you know, health history questions, if that population's often the age range and, and gender that I'm asking whether they're, they're, they could be pregnant or if they're doing anything to prevent pregnancy. And then I just usually ask, are you breastfeeding or lactating? Um, if they say yes, then I ask if breastfeeding is their preferred term because some people um, prefer chest feeding, breastfeeding. Some people prefer just that you know that they don't actually directly breastfeed, they just pump. So I usually just ask a little bit about their preference at that point, but breastfeeding is sort of the more utilized term, I think, and most people are familiar with what that means if they say yes or no. So I, I think that's the easiest way to do it is to work it into your standard questions for that demographic as opposed to waiting for it to reveal itself. And you'll get, you'll get just like with the pregnancy or drug use questions, you'll get that look like, what? No, that's crazy. Um, but most of the time people will just sort of say the usual standard, no, I haven't. And no, I haven't done that either. And, you know, just it gets you through that. Ever since your grand rounds, I've started asking it when I ask allergies to medicines. Mm. I just build it right there. The only thing that's happened is I, I find myself either stumbling or asking somebody who, like you said, was flabbergasted. Yeah. I even asked, <laughs> especially those who are trans or non-binary. Yeah. Since I feel uh, I, I'm sometimes confused as to what to ask, I will just empirically ask. Yeah. And then I Manage deal, with, it. deal yeah. with the joke or, or right. whatever if it... If you could say, wrong. you know, yeah. providing milk for an infant. I mean, there's a few other ways that you could say it. I try to just pick something that's natural and then be prepared to. I think if you go the other route of I'm only going to ask if I hear that they had a baby or I see an OB visit, then I think there there sometimes can be a feeling of, oh, no, I'm, I'm not breastfeeding anymore. Kind of this down, um, no, I wasn't able to do it. I've, I've found that the response to that is sometimes a little bit of not as clean and kind of clinical about it where you say, this is actually relevant to me making a medication plan for you, and so I need to ask it is kind of more the, the take for me. For me, I walked away when I was listening to you, I was struck by how I was probably undercapturing the number of people who've gone through my care who this might have been relevant for, and I, I didn't even open the door for them to talk about it. Well, and what I find, um, and I've done a few different chart reviews in various ways to do, or we've been doing some quality work and some other work, and, and when you do a chart review, you see that the, the I think the physician's 
tend to be a little bit protected from it because it'll go sort of the nursing lactation route. They'll call lactation. They'll say, the doctor put me on this medicine. Does that work for breastfeeding? And the lactation consultant will advise based on the information they have, but they aren't necessarily able to choose an alternative medicine or something. I've also, you know, I've had take, I've heard stories of people getting told that they should pump and dump at, pump and dump after lidocaine or something that's oh, completely inert and not not necessary. But it already happened when they they go find out or they they get some information from from an outside source. So I think the physician or the care team leader really being aware of this does help with the plan in sort of as it unfolds instead of trying to backtrack and say now that this plan is made what do i do a lot of times you can you can look at a medicine and say if this medicine is necessary and it's not compatible with breastfeeding the first thing i'm going to do is try to find an alternative not counsel them to stop breastfeeding is is there an alternative if there's not then i would go to the patient and you'll find that some patients will want to forego something or do something differently as opposed to stopping or at least if they need to stop breastfeeding or or pump and dump for a short period they know why Um, and I think that's important. Could I just repeat what I heard so it sounds like you have a a methodology for approaching this and the first line is you find a medicine that is both safe and effective for this patient so they can continue Mm -hmm. on their course and Mm -hmm. that's the best case and it sounds as though if you didn't, if that first line medication is more dangerous for somebody who's breastfeeding, then you try and find an alternative to that same medication so that the patient can continue their breastfeeding schedule and behaviors yes. that they want. Yep. And if that's not av- available where there's a, a very reasonable, safe option, then the third thing that you're doing, if I heard correctly, is going to the patient and having a discussion about the situation that we can't make this both of these things happen, mm-hmm. what do what you, you want to do? do? I think that it doesn't happen very often, actually, that we get that far into it. Um, but because, and I only say that because most medicines are safe or have a safe alternative. And so that, those steps, the, the other thing, if I could even go back one more step is I think about what I would do if they weren't breastfeeding because one thing that I don't want to happen is I don't want patients to not get the treatment that they need for their condition. So I don't want to undertreat pain. I don't want to undertreat, in our case, you know, postoperative nausea, vomiting. I want to say, what would my normal standard of care be? What am I, what's breastfeeding compatible? I'm lucky that in anesthesia, a lot of the medicines that we use are breastfeeding compatible. And then uh, then I can say, if there is sort of a tipping point, one of those for me is scopolamine. It's a scope, we put on a scopolamine patch, helps with nausea and vomiting. It can decrease milk production a little bit. So I will go to the patient and I'll say, your risk for nausea is this, the milk supply effect is, you know, small, but probably there. What do you want to do? And do you want to just have it on? And then if you're not nauseated, take it off. Do you, you know, you've had five surgeries before and never had nausea, so let's skip it. Or you've had five surgeries before and you throw up every time, so let's definitely put it on and then deal with the supply later. They, they just, every patient knows themselves best, I think. And in this issue in particular, they really um, have a feel for this. The, 
I think before I would have had, you know, infants in my own life that were, that were, that I was breastfeeding, I maybe wouldn't have appreciated this, but you don't go to the grocery store without like figuring out when they ate last and when they need to eat next. I mean, it's, it's really a part of the family unit and everybody's family is different, but feeding that infant in your family is part of how that family runs. And so I think that uh, they, they know themselves, they, they know what that m- will mean for their family better than I do. And so I, but I know this, you know, physiology and pharmacology better than they do. And so I think when we come together and say, here's this, here's this risk, here's this good thing, here's what we could do, and they are part of the plan. The other thing I love about that is when they go forward and talk to their friend at the birthday party about their surgery or their medicine that they have an understanding of why we did or didn't do something and that that helps the the regular the narrative sort of change around this. Would it be okay if we run through a couple of cases and some meds that I might think about and you share with me how you would approach that and if you would kind of give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. We're talking about patients coming to the ED. So let's say we have 25-year-old female comes in with right upper quadrant discomfort and it sounds uh, a lot like she has either a gallstone or cholecystitis. So in my mind, I'm hearing this presentation from my resident and I'm thinking, we're going to get a gallbladder ultrasound, we're going to get some labs, and I'm seeing uh, a several hour stay, but we have to treat her pain. Let's say for argument's sake that I was I was smart enough and it's after this discussion with you and I've thought to ask that, uh, is she breastfeeding? And I find out that she is. So I think about my pain and nausea control options. And I'm thinking, you know, once I move beyond something like Tylenol or Ketorolac, really I'm thinking fentanyl, morphine, Dilaudid, possibly pain dose ketamine. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the staples that I would reach for Bank, any other general thoughts? I, I still give Toradol to this group or Ketorolac, um, although I would have to check and see mm-hmm. if that's safe or not. So among among those options, what would be your, your first choice? And are there any of those that you would say, I would, I would lean away from those? So fentanyl, short acting, um, not very orally bioavailable, and I would say good first line to get on top of pain. Um, oxycodone, they recommend less than 30 milligrams per day, and that's because of the oxymorphone metabolite building up, and that has a longer half-life. So the things, you know, categorically, we talked about move, molecule movement into breast milk, but another factor is when, when the half-life of a medicine is very long, the baby could have multiple feedings that are that contain the medication, and so the, they could have a kind of a buildup of sorts. I would say the Tylenol, Toradol, great first line, fentanyl to get on top of pain, oxycodone, morphine, there's a lot of data for morphine in this population because its use in C-section. So I think relatively a a safe option as well. Hydromorphone has a little bit less data, but I think what you're watching for is, is mom getting sedated? Are those plasma levels of medications high to the point that that the breast milk level might be high? The other thing that you can do is have a conversation with her and say, it's really important to stay on your schedule, to be emptying on your schedule. We really want to treat your pain. So I think you can, you can pump 
on your schedule and we'll be treating your pain. And if there's a point that you're very drowsy or we think that you're not, you know, that you're, the plasma levels of pain medicine might be high, um, then we might recommend that you either not save that or save it and some people will dilute it or do other things with it. But I think that uh, it's hard to say without, all, without the doses, but clinically, I think if mom is awake and alert and appears comfortable, that that represents a, a, you know, a low enough plasma level that the milk is safe to use. We wanna stay away from things like codeine um, that's variably metabolized. There's a black box warning on tramadol, so I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and then meparidine also uh, is one that can have sort of variable metabolism. So those are the ones you really want to stay away from. And then I think it's it does sort of end up being a little bit of judgment, a little bit of case by case. But we don't we say in the recovery room after anesthesia if they're awake and alert that they can they can feed whether that's pumping and reserving the milk for later or directly feeding in the PACU, both of those are okay. But um, I think that treating the pain is very important. Saying, well, she can't have pain medicine because she's lactating is not one of, not the takeaway that I want anyone to have. But the remembering to keep them on the schedule of emptying so that they're down, their supply later on isn't affected or that they don't get mastitis is important. And then I think uh, basing whether to keep that milk or not on the medication amounts that need to be given to control pain. I, I usually see that these patients sort of err on the taking less side, mm-hmm. that they're like, well, I don't want to do that. And so what I'm often doing is saying, you know, this low dose of medicine has been shown to be safe rather than, you know, treating pain until they don't have any more and then deciding what to do. It's, it's sort of the other way, I think. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is uh, our first case where we have a patient who's in pain and considering a lot of IV options and uh, a short acting agent like fentanyl is a reasonable place to start and morphine is also well studied. It sounds like ketamine is less well studied in some cases perhaps, and and Dilaudid is also less well studied. And so I have a, a couple of good options in my armamentarium. What I'm doing is number one, treating the pain and keeping the patient on a schedule. And so if I'm gonna be very conservative in my in my approach, I'm at least keeping them on the schedule so that their production isn't being affected. Mm-hmm. I'm assessing their level of consciousness, and if they're awake and alert, I'm suspecting that the plasma levels aren't very high, and and potentially they can keep that milk. If I if I was going to reference, try and look up somewhere, are the doses I'm giving safe? I noticed you said uh, something like that. Where what resource would I use? Yeah. Uh, LactMed is a database that's managed by the NIH. I like that uh, because. It has all the different studies by drug that may that are that describe anything to do with milk production, uh, milk levels, infant effects, um, and infant blood levels. So if there's there, if there's anything to be said in the literature about that, it'll be there. So sometimes that's sometimes that's a lot, and it's a little bit a little bit of each of those categories. Sometimes it's it's um, a lot of C-section data, but whatever it is, it's all there, and I like that a lot. 
there's also the infant risk center that's um, it's associated with the uh, medications and mother's milk book that's um, written by Dr. Thomas Hale um, and that is a really nice uh, useful way to look at medications too and he's sort of processed a lot of that information there will be a recommendation and some of the um, data summarized for you so I think both of those are really nice uh, ways to look and um, the other thing is thinking about the mechanisms of action. So even though ketamine doesn't have a lot of data per se, it's one that I'll use at analgesic doses because the half-life is very short, the oral bioavailability is low, and the it's the there's no respiratory depression to be expected in the infant even if there was a trace amount. So I do use analgesic dose ketamine and uh, but it's not one that has as much data behind it as fentanyl and morphine. So I think that once you understand the physiology, and then you can start to make decisions about that too, but also be talking to your patient and saying, you know, here's a medicine that I think will really help your pain. It's not as sedating. Um, and I think very low levels will get to the breast milk, even though that's not, you know, been studied. I think they understand why they're not included in a lot of studies, even though I still don't think that's the right answer. I think they, they understand that. Um, because they're sort of used to dealing with that as they've already been through pregnancy and early, early breastfeeding. As you were talking, I'm imagining, you, you know, during the World Cup, they always flash after a goal to like the home country and the audience just going crazy. <laughs> and as you're saying, even though ketamine doesn't have a lot of available evidence, when you start to think through it, you would be okay with pain dose ketamine. There's a huge screen of emergency pre- emergency oh. <laughs> medicine practitioners just screaming with joy right now. Yeah, and the coach there yes. is Dr. Jim Hami, exactly standing yes. out in front, yes, fist in the air, right. celebrating the goal. So Tiger well, Woods, and, and you guys do sedation in the in the emergency room too, and mm-hmm. and ketamine is is a drug that I think works very nicely for that. It's not, you know, it's not expected to be a respiratory depressant. Mm -hmm. And so even if trace amounts after a period, I mean, so you'd be waiting till they're awake and alert for them to feed again after their sedation, even at sedation levels. I think the expected plasma level would be quite low by that point. The oral bioavailability low and uh, also the effects on the infant not respiratory depression. Um, so you could tell mom and dad that they might seem a little sleepy, worst case scenario, but it's not gonna, they're not gonna have respiratory depression. We've done a lot talking about, especially IV medication. Mm-hmm. You mentioned oxycodone as a threshold that we'd rather not cross. Is hydrocodone any better or different? I think hydrocodone does actually have more, um, more data because it's been used longer for c-section pain so we're we send patients home with these types of medications with very early newborns um and i think as long as they take the a reasonable amount at or you know orally that the plasma level is not expected to get high enough where the milk level would impact the infant so a lot of the hydrocodone and and oral oxycodone actually does have a lot of a lot of um it's it's observational type data it's not necessarily randomized or attached to milk levels and blood levels like it would be if this population was a little easier to study but it it is probably uh 
a higher volume than some of the other drugs we've been talking about. If I have a, uh, a mother of a very young infant, what is your take on ketorolac, even though this is IV ketorolac going into the infant's mouth? Right. So as long as they don't have a you know, a PDA-dependent cardiac issue going on, I think the the use of ketorolac is, is okay. And the other NSAIDs certainly are used um, quite often in the C-section pain population. We use ketorolac in our C-section pain population here as well. I think that when you compare that to the risk of sedating medications, that that benefit becomes even a little bit more prominent. It also works so well, right? right. So um, I'd hate to not let people have access to it, you know, based on that. But I think that that would be something that you could say, I'm going to make this pain plan. I'm going to look up each medicine in LACMED or, or medication in mother's milk and then make a kind of summary plan. And as you do that, and and you can look at tables and, you know, I could list medicines for you, but it won't be as useful as you really figuring out what your top 20 medicines are and, and looking those up. And what will happen is you'll take care of, you know, 20 breastfeeding patients in the next two years. And if you're really looking up each medicine that you use regularly, you'll start to get a feel for that. And as new medicines come out, ask yourself that question um, and don't start stop at the package insert that says um, you know not recommended for that go a step farther and say let me think about this medicine let me think about how it works let me think about how I'm going to be giving it let me think about that infant I will say that if the infant is premature or has chronic um, disease of their own maybe a cardiac disease or a metabolic problem then I would recommend that you reach out to their pediatrician because the recommendations that I see in LACMED and and, uh, Dr. Hale's work, they really are sort of for term infants and and you do wanna be sure that you're not giving recommendations that aren't applicable to their particular infant. That makes sense. One last question. Earlier you were talking about the column of milk and there being passive diffusion across that both ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm understanding correctly, as mom metabolizes the medication and is waking up, won't the concentration within the breast milk be falling? Yes. So in that case earlier where you mentioned we worried maybe the the concentration was too high, maybe the mom should consider discarding that milk. If we waited longer for her to pump, would then that milk be more usable? Yes. So so I think that... um, it's it's sort of it's it's a all one like it's all context so you have the what i would say is have the patient pump or feed the infant as close to the beginning of all this as you can you know so for surgery we have them pump or feed the infant in the pre-op area um, as close to surgery as possible and then you say now i'm going to give all my induction drugs so you might say we're going to order some tylenol and some toradol and why don't you pump and then we'll get working on some of that stronger pain medicine. Now that would depend if they're in really acute pain where that that waiting period isn't tolerable, that's fine. But then yes, I think then you're waiting for the next feeding and if at the time of the next feeding or, or, or pumping interval, they are drowsy and you know not don't don't fit that sort of awake and alert 
um, category, then you could say, well, we need, she'd like to pump anyway because she's uncomfortable. Or you can say, we're going to reevaluate in a little bit of time. But you don't want to push it too far because the schedule is very important and you don't want to not give the medications that they need to be comfortable. So it really is a sort of a balance and a constant discussion with the patient too because they'll probably feel one way or another. Should we, by the same token, be recommending that people take their oral opioid or whatever medication we're a little concerned with after they've immediately fed or pumped if they can there, the times? there are some recommendations out there that do say you could take the take the medication at the time of pumping or feeding so that the plasma level would peak and then fall by the next one. I think we want to be careful about overcomplicating it too much when the medicines are mostly safe no matter when you take them. Um, so I think but I think that if you had someone who needed uh, a high dose of something or the infant was very young these this is sort of a little bit more of the art of it It, you you could you know you could um, capitalize on that uh, physiology but I think most of the medicines that we use you know we're talking about sort of medications that are already pretty safe and so um, making adding that little bit of complication I don't want somebody to you know be, take, be in pain and say, well, I can't take that pain medicine until the next feeding and they just ate or something because it might not, might not be necessary. That makes sense. Another example and expanding on something that you already brought up. So let's say we have a patient come in and they have a, a dislocated shoulder and we're working through a couple things we would commonly do. So we might do uh, some lidocaine into the joint space And then if that doesn't work, we have to start talking about sedation and a couple common sedation agents. We talked about, you know, we've started talking about ketamine, propofol, and maybe thinking about something like a benzodiazepine and an opioid. Those are just some some general things we would approach. So thinking through those options, what what would be the, the first lines? You know, is that the lidocaine hematoma block for the distal radius? Is that is that something reasonable to do in this case? And then when I need to move to sedation, what is the safest thing I can do? Yeah, lidocaine, very, very safe in this population. Very, I would say that's definitely a great first line. Regional techniques are a first line for us as well. We recommend that whatever regional can be used in an operation be used really for all our patients, but definitely in this patient population, I would say yes, um, that is a good one. Um, what I try to do, what I would do here is, so you can go ahead with the lidocaine, and then I would say, if you're planning sedation, you could just ask them when the last time they fed or pumped was, and that you might want to do that right before sedation because they're going, they're going to have a recovery period after sedation that they won't, they they may well during the sedation certainly, and then for a little while after until they're awake and alert again they won't be able to. And so for their comfort and supply, it's probably good to do it as close to that start time as possible. That's a great pro tip. Um, Then I would say your induction with propofol, some opioids, some some benzodiazepine. I would choose short acting, so probably fentanyl and midazolam. I think some ketamine there would be fine too because it – 
go not to go back to ketamine again, but the other thing that it's doing, it's not just in isolation, it's opioid sparing, it's it's propofol sparing. So these other more sedating, more apnea-inducing medications can be used at lower doses. And so the risk of ketamine, I think, is low, and the benefit is also high. So I think adding that in there really makes a lot of sense, and I tend to do that with my general anesthetics, uh, that analgesia dose of ketamine. I'm learning so much. I, I'll, I'll be honest, before this, I had written in my notes ketamine and just scratched out. This is why I love being able to meet people who've done so much research on these topics because I learn so much. And I'm thinking about your ketamine talk that you gave in Florida several years ago. <laughs> yeah. Think about you adding Slide. this. This is, the, this is the next one. I think this needs to go in there yeah. as part of the context for why it could be beneficial. You just can't make risk evaluations without the benefit column yeah. i think and so these the these patients you know the the public and individual health benefits to be had here by supporting um, you know longer breastfeeding outcomes and safe breastfeeding outcomes as a as a you know medical community um, really are, are very high and then that helps us slow down and say okay it's not even so much that there's a lot of risk to be had with a lot of what we're talking about either, but we have to, but we have to slow down and we have to be thoughtful and we have to talk to our patients, which we all love doing. Overall, the process that we're going to work through, we're going to clarify the schedule of uh, when our patient is breastfeeding. And if it's within a reasonable window, we are going to see if they would be willing to, before we give the medications, breastfeed or uh, pump. Then we've picked our medication, we've picked propofol. I start my sedation and it's going well. Let's say it takes 30 minutes or something like that. At the next interval for feeding, mm -hmm. do I have to get rid of this milk if the patient has is awake and alert and pump and dump or with propofol, is that something that I can really say, wow, you're awake and alert now, even though you were under for 30 minutes uh, and, you know, deep sedation? How do you approach that with propofol? Yeah, so propofol is actually a pretty common one for us. And so I think it's subject to that same recommendation of if, if they're awake and alert after anesthesia, that represents a low plasma level of propofol. Um, propofol is subject to that context-sensitive half-life where if the case is very, very, very long, there may be some total body propofol stored. But I still think the idea is that if they're awake and alert, that the plasma concentration at equilibrium and falling is low enough that they can go ahead. I would also expect the oral bioavailability of propofol, even trace amounts in the milk, to be very low very low. So I think that that's the other protective piece there. Um, and then I would say the, the reason that, and you might not have to, if the mom's in a lot of pain and baby's not here and it hasn't been that long since she's um, emptied, she, you, you might not need to if the interval's that short. Uh, you know, that 30 minutes plus maybe a little bit of recovery time. But when they're going to the operating room or going to have a longer procedure, uh, that separation time is something that the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, um, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine recommends that you sort of calculate for these folks is what's that separation time, that expected separation time between the infant or the pump um, from, from before to 
after. And if you're doing the sedation in their room and baby's in the waiting room, uh, that's not a long separation time. If I'm transporting them up to the operating pre-op and then the operating room and then the PACU, even a short procedure might have a longer separation time. So I think that that is sort of the discussion to have with the with the patient, um, especially if I'm trying to imagine if my shoulder was separated, you might say, no, no, just go ahead and we'll deal with it after. But that's only if it's going to be short. But then let's say that they're not able to reduce that shoulder and the patient decided that she she was gonna wait until after, but they're not able to get it in, and now she's gonna come upstairs to the operating room, then I would probably push a little bit more that let's do something about that. I know you're uncomfortable, we can help you, um, but let's do something about that before you go upstairs, because it might be a little while um, with transport and general anesthesia and recovery. We've talked about ketamine, which would apply to ketofol, which is common in emergency medicine practice, uh, but finishing up with midazolam and fentanyl, is the recommendation, you know, similar? Yep, I agree. And then what I try to do in the general surgery and general anesthesia population is if I know that I think they're going to need a certain amount of fentanyl, I try to just give most of that at the beginning and then some, you know, smaller amounts at the end, still targeting, you know, patient comfort and signs that they're comfortable, like heart rate, respiratory rate, that sort of thing. But um, if I can sort of front load it a little bit, I feel like that is um, get setting them up for that quick recovery kind of success. I mean, we want this for all of our patients that they have they have tolerable pain, no nausea, and a quick recovery. I mean, those are it, it's not a different um, goal than you have for your other patients. It's just sort of this little spin on it where you have a little bit of a different why. It's honestly um, targeting that. I think is. I've thought about it a little bit more since being involved in this population with my other patients where I'm saying, you know what, there's probably some benefit to being awake and alert, even if you're going back up to (laughs) the hospital, uh, you know, back up to the inpatient area that, I mean... trying to design the the quickest recovery sedation so that an anesthetic so that patients can be awake participate in their care steady on their feet eating nutritious food like that probably has just as much benefit for all of our patients so uh, so does sparing opioids when you can and these sorts of things so I don't think of it as being like so revolutionary as much as just a little bit of a lens to see things through. And really, hopefully, what I would stress is just an open channel of communication with the patient. You know, what do you think about this? How uh, is your pain tolerable? Do you, you know, I have some options if it's not. Um, I think that that line of communication and saying this is something that medicine cares about, um, not just it's not just something we want you to go home and do. And, you know, it, it really matters to us. Yeah. My last symptom management question, our patient with cholecystitis is also having a lot of nausea, vomiting. And I think about options we frequently use, Zofran, Droperidol, uh, Reglan, Phenergan. Are there any that you think are a stronger first line or do we not not need to consider it as deeply? Most of those are, are, I mean, actually all of those are are safe in, in breastfeeding. I think that what I like to do is use small doses of multiple medications just to minimize side effects. So um, we'll typically give um, Zofran, 
we'll, we'll typically give dexamethasone, which has good, um, good data for post-operative nausea and vomiting. And then we had been giving low-dose droperidol in the um, operative area, but now we're giving low-dose Haldol, which also works very well. Learn something new. There's a lot of data for Haldol in breastfeeding because of psychiatric patients taking it in breastfeeding, and those are at higher doses than the antiemetic doses. Two aspects of nausea and vomiting that um, want to get your thoughts on. Number one, you mentioned hypovolemia and how can we optimize volume status? Should I just be, you know, ordering three liters of fluid when they walk through the door? Absolutely, pressure bag. That's you know, that it's it, uh, <laughs> anyone could be septic. Preferentially, I, I got to <laughs> hit you know 20, 30 cc's per kilo every patient all the time. Number two, let's say I start to have a side effect from an antiemetic and I need to give something like Benadryl yeah. uh, to deal with uh, akathisias or something like that. Yeah. What, in those situations, do I need to be worried about Benadryl and how do I optimize my fluid status? Uh, Benadryl's okay. And fluid status, actually, like every... <laughs> Euvolemia, Euvolemia. Is, is the holy grail. Um, so the you don't want them to be dehydrated. A lot of people, even women just walking around, will say that their supply is affected by their hydration status and will notice that. Um, but hyper, or, um, hypervolemia, also not desirable because you can get third spacing. And so you can get third spacing of fluid in the breast too, and then have a outf outflow obstruction. Um, so you don't want to have that either. So euvolemia is the is what we we try to target. But it does take anywhere from two to five hundred cc's per day of extra fluid for milk production. So if you're calculating sort of eyes and O's or or trying to make decisions for NPO patients that aren't taught aren't keeping down. Um, fluids, you will probably want to do bump it up a little bit. So what I'm hearing is that we don't have a comfort in overshooting with hydration here. Yeah. We could actually be causing harm mm -hmm. to these patients by creating outlook obstructions. Yeah. I think drinking to thirst is, is probably the preferred thing. If they're not able to keep down orals, I guess you could just ask, you know, give them IV fluid that matches their maintenance plus a little bit, but I wouldn't probably do plus a lot and then just try to get on top of the nausea and vomiting. Overall, what I, I'm really learning in this session is I think my focus before has always been on trying to pick the, the medication that I perceive to be the safest, and that's really the focus of my process. What I think I'm learning more and more is that the process is much more patient-centric based on when they last pumped or fed, when they will next pump or feed, what is their mental status at that time. But really, many of the medications we've gone through are the same mm -hmm. uh, same nausea medication, same pain medication, same sedation, and it comes down to much more focusing on timing and, uh, and how the patient is doing on reassessment. Yep. And I think patients, I think patients will, I think you'll find that patients are grateful that this was prioritized and that they will have some understanding in the ways that it, it can't be sometimes, it, but that for the most part it was and that can be a very satisfying experience for them um, I don't know I've found it to be very rewarding it it I understand where people are coming from where they'll, they'll say 
I'll get to the end of a talk and someone will say, but isn't the safe thing still to just tell them to pump and dump for 24 hours afterwards so that you make sure there's nothing there? And after I sigh a little bit, then I'll say, well, it depends on what you mean by safe. It, it does, because from a population standpoint, from this individual health standpoint for them, um, from a, you know, family group standpoint, you know, that can be in a lot of different things. So I think the ideal is both. So no, nobody wants moms or infants to be at any sort of elevated risk here. And I think what we're trying to say is they aren't, if you can, are, can be thoughtful about it, communicative about it, and realize that there's so much benefit to be had by helping them continue this. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that because you gave the same point at the Grand Rounds. And there's waste if the patient has an opportunity to have given their their baby breast milk that they wish to give and we tell them to get rid of it and that's waste in a system and we don't tolerate waste in other in other ways Um, similarly we wouldn't even though it is safer to not give anyone opioids we still wouldn't want them to experience some of these things without opioids right and I mean, we've we've seen a, quite a few things in the last few years that, um, through my filter of uh, you know this issue, you know we've seen formula shortages, we've seen um, water issues with having clean water in an area where people live. We've had um, in uh, in other countries, people might not have access to formula or clean water reliably. Um, we also have seen you know this pandemic in which infants under six months were the last to have a vaccination option. And so what was immune protection, you know, during that time, how important was that? Um, so I think it's it's worth slowing down our, our workflow for just a few moments and having this conversation with the patient because at a population level, this has huge um, cost and health outcome effects for, for all of us. We'd been talking earlier about our patient with cholecystitis, and I got her pain under control right away, and things are going well. And um, I was referencing a, an infographic from your original presentation that was this bottle, uh, and it's awesome, and gives me a, it said, fentanyl, good to go, and it says fentanyl, single-dose IV. I've given her a single-dose IV, but on reassessment, she's having pain again. When is it safe to redose? What kinds of doses am I thinking about in terms of uh, safe to administer before we're going to the OR? And if if her pain is out of control and and she will be scheduled to pump in you know 15 minutes, should I ask her to wait? Good question. I think that using um, really a multimodal approach, as you're describing, is the way to go where we're using non-sedating things like um, acetaminophen, NSAIDs, regional techniques, uh, all those things as the first line and using opioids for breakthrough. Um, I think 
What I don't want to do is give advice that leads to patients not having controlled pain. So definitely manage the pain um, in sort of that stepwise fashion that we all try to try to do. But when you do need to give fentanyl, if you give fentanyl at or, or IV medications, if you give especially short-acting ones like fentanyl at a regular dose, 50 mics at a time, and so forth, um, the recommendation is that there's no partic- no specific waiting period. But I would just say make sure the patient's awake and alert, um, able to pump or breastfeed at the time that you do. Um, as far as waiting 15 minutes, I would just ask the patient, you know, do they feel like they could um, pump before you give additional medicines or do they need it now and they could even wait if they seem drowsy? I just think that um, we really, in this patient population, want to balance that patient autonomy and agency and their preferences about their um, their lactation. So I don't want the fact that they're lactating to mean they have to go down this certain path or have suboptimal pain control, but we also want to be sort of open line of communication with them that, that this is our plan. What do they think? You mentioned the term compatibility. Help me understand what you mean by compatibility with breastfeeding. Um, when I say compatible, I mean that they can continue breastfeeding once they're awake and alert after anesthesia um, without interruption and without expected negative effects to the infant. So that would be a lot of the medications that we use in anesthesia and emergency medicine, sedation, and pain management. So propofol, fentanyl, midazolam, uh, low-dose ketamine, uh, dexmedetomidine. A lot of those medications I consider compatible because you can give them as you normally would, and once the patient is awake and alert after anesthesia, they can continue breastfeeding without interruption. Um, that's the way I think of it. It seems like having access to breast pumps would be a natural solution to this problem. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that would solve all the problems uh, that this patient population might have in the emergency department? That's that's a good um, good question. One of the interesting things is not not all patients pump. Um, so so sometimes uh, having the infant is a better choice for a particular patient than trying to help them learn how to pump. Or certainly if you have lactation support in your hospital, involving them can be very helpful if this situation unexpectedly happens. But I do think that a lot of patients do pump at least somewhat and are familiar at least with whatever pump they have at home. So if patients know that they're coming into the hospital for a procedure, we recommend that they bring their pump if they want and tell them that we have a hospital-grade pump here. Although probably not every hospital has one, especially those that don't have OB services at their hospital but might have an emergency department. Um, So I would recommend that emergency departments have a hospital-grade pump or a process that the hospital-grade pump used for um, other purposes in the hospital can be brought to the emergency room. Um, it, it would be an infrequent occurrence, I think, but when it, when it did happen, it would be really helpful for the patient to have access to that. The emergency department visits are just always so unexpected, and this might not be at the forefront of their mind while it's unfolding. But then very soon after that, it becomes more relevant and they may ha- be able to have someone bring something in from home, for example, if they didn't bring it with them. But having one available does help. Before we end, yeah. Dr. Dodd, 
is there anything else that you want the listeners to hear or take away from this conversation? Well, if you if you took the time to listen to this whole podcast about this topic, just thank you, and I hope that it supports you in taking care of this patient population. Um, they're they're out there. They're in your practice wherever um, you know patients eighteen to forty are already in your practice, and uh, they really appreciate that just a few moments of of slowing down and helping them develop a plan for this issue. Um, And whatever patient population is near and dear to your heart, I would say just try to work on it a little bit at a time. And it makes a big difference for patients downstream as you as you advocate for them. Um, But patients are why we're here and and where it's at. So it's worth it. The Always On EM podcast hosted by... Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.